0: Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura
1: Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters
2: with secrets.
3: Play me wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC Podcast. So this year we've lost some musical giants, and I often think we don't sit long enough with the loss and what it means. So today on the podcast, we wanted to sit with the loss of some of our heroes. You're going to hear us pay tribute to some of the legends who died in 2023. I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. This is Commotion. It is the end of the year, and we're dedicating this episode to some of the big music heroes that we lost this year. On this show, on Commotion, our way of paying tribute to artists has been to gather people, to celebrate the lives of the people we lost, and express our gratitude for everything that they gave us. We talk to people who knew the artist personally, or maybe had their lives profoundly changed by their music. And ideally, we want to have a bit of a laugh. We want to enjoy reminiscing about everything that that artist has given us, sort of like a podcast version of Awake. Today, you're going to hear excerpts from some of our favorite tributes to the artists we lost in 2023, starting with this Canadian legend.
4: The legend is on from down
2: up the big lake the get sugar
1: In never gives up when the skies of November
2: That's Gordon Lightfoot with The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Gord has given us countless classics. He passed away on May 1st, and he was 84 years old. The morning after we got the news, I sat down with three people who had a lot of memorable run-ins with Gord over the years. Tom Wilson of Junkhouse and Blackie and the Rodeo Kings folk singer Angus Finnan, who hosted a long-running Gordon Lightfoot tribute event at Hughes Room in Toronto, and Pam Carter of the Mariposa Festival. And here's a bit of that conversation. We started with Tom Wilson talking about the night that he curated a special 40th anniversary concert for Gord's album, Sundown.
4: I thought, wow, that's that's an enormous honour, and uh, I'm going to take that very seriously, of course. And uh, I was asked probably in January, and then I was back in Nashville working, and I'm sitting in the pancake pantry, eating my breakfast, and the phone rings. And I look at my phone; it's a four one six number, and I don't recognize. That. I figure, "Who the hell is this?" And I pick it up, and I say, "Hello." And it's like, "Hello, Tom Wilson." I said, "Yes, it is." He goes, "It's Gord, Gord Lightfoot here." So, oh my god, <laughs> it's Gordon! Lightfoot. I was like, you know, I was, eating, I was eating, waffles and eggs, and and I said, "Well, hey, Gord, how you doing?" Yeah, good. Listen, I hear you doing that tribute to my uh, 40th anniversary anniversary for sundown well i want you to know i'm showing up i want to make sure you're doing it right tom (laughs) all i could think of was please don't (laughs) please just just stay home would you please so anyways uh time goes on the show is in july i'm rehearsing the band now it's late june i'm in rehearsals with my band and and all these friends that i gathered to do this uh tribute and uh, i get another phone call and uh, uh unlisted number hello tom it's Gord. Gord lightfoot here I said ah i said he says uh how's the band i said the band is fantastic Gord. he goes good you know i'm showing up he says i want you to know something though tom i said what's that he goes i'm not playing not a note he says i won't i won't be playing at this show at all he said so don't plan on it he says no playing i said okay Gord. that's fine sure enough the night of the show comes i'm at the loading dock of the theater and this giant SUV shows up and this little guy gets out of the back, is, uh, goes to the back. The guy gets him a guitar and he walks up the back loading dock with the guitar and he doesn't say hello or anything to me. He just says, how's the band? <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> Band's cooking, Gore. Don't worry about it. He said, OK, he goes, where's my dressing room? Which we didn't have a dressing room for him because we didn't really, you know, <laughs> anyways, we get him a dressing room. The show's going on. Gord stands right behind Ray Ferrugia, who was the drummer in Junkhouse, and he's looking at me at the side of the stage and pointing at the drummer saying, all right, this guy's got it right. Ray's got it right. Then he wanders off. He's in his dressing room smoking cigarettes, which nobody's allowed to smoke indoors except Gordon Lightfoot. (laughs) And halfway through the show, he comes up to my daughter, who is uh, stage managing the show. He goes, okay, I'm ready to go on. (laughs) (laughs) after after he adamantly told me he was not going on and so my daughter scrambled we got him on stage and he performed for about 20 minutes to half an hour and then he came out and joined myself and Ron Sexsmith on uh, Summerside Life there's actually a video of that and it's it's truly one of the greatest moments besides inducting him into the Mariposa Hall of Fame last year which was pretty well one of the highlights of my uh, professional career mm. and thank you Pam for asking me to do that that was a great moment
0: you're most
5: welcome it was awesome
0: and mm. I can certainly relate to your story Tom
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> but that, you know that was one of the the really endearing qualities of, of Gord I mean he genuinely cared about community gathering to celebrate the songs it wasn't so much about him at all mm. um, with the with the way we feel, the the tribute concert that Jory Nash and I ran for a number of years out of Hughes Room and toured around the the province for a while. I mean, Hughes Room was only 250 seats, but with the exception of the first year, when Gordon had just come out of the, the hospital from his aneurysm and coma, which was really part of the impetus for mounting that event to begin with. And he called, same thing, you know, Picked up the phone and it's Gord, Gord Lightfoot. Just just that. that I love these impressions. They're fantastic. Every time, you know. (laughs) Uh, And and he was calling to apologize that he couldn't make it to the show. We were just glad he was alive still. Um, But that he had just come out of the hospital and had nurses back at the house. But every year after that, he came down, sat in the audience got up and sang along, joined in at the end when we all sang um, Rich Man Spiritual, the first song off the first side of his first record. And he just had a very humble element to, and was always up in the, uh, there wasn't a green room there, but the kitchen office space where all the artists would gather to, to get ready. And he'd come up and, He'd tell you what he thought about your version of the song, and you know, he always liked it. <laughs> it wasn't quite the way he did it,
2: but you know. <laughs> I, first of all, I just love that everybody's got their own impression of Gordon <laughs> Lightfoot today. That's absolutely fantastic.
5: But it's that's, that's the other thing about like seeing all of the photos that are up online currently. It's not just people with it. I'm surprised that it's not as many photos of Gord on stage and it's photos of people with Gord. Like, he was yes. just utterly excessive.
0: In the early morning rain With a dollar in my hand With an aching in my heart And my pocket's full of sand I'm a long way from home and I miss my loved
2: one so. From 1966, that is Early Morning Rain by Gordon Lightfoot. So, not long after Gord died, we lost another icon. Tina Turner passed away on May 24th. She was 83. We know that Tina earned the title, the Queen of Rock and Roll. And for a lot of people, Tina became a symbol of strength and survival. Tina, of course, escaped an abusive relationship with her ex husband, Ike Turner. And then she ended up launching a massive solo career in the 80s. Tina is someone who really helped bring out the conversations about domestic violence out into the open. But when you're celebrated as a survivor, it can be kind of difficult to leave that painful past behind you. And that's something that Tina struggled with up until the very end of her life. So I want you to hear Tina talking about her split from Ike. And then after that, you're going to hear my conversation with Amanda Hess, who interviewed Tina for The New York Times in 2019, and also the writer, Garvia Bailey.
0: I lived 16 years with a man that I knew there was no way that I could ever be happy with, but I felt that I had to stay there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You have to believe me now when I tell you something.
5: My ex-husband was a physically violent man. I went through basic torture. Torture? You would say, you would call it torture? I, to me, it was
1: a lot of people don't know it. And your magazine will probably be the first to make it
0: publicly known. I was living a life of death. I didn't exist. But I survived it. And when I walked out, I walked. And I didn't look back.
2: I didn't exist. Uh, those are heavy words. Amanda, when, when you spoke to her, was your impression that she was able to move on?
4: Yes and no. I I mean, I think she had a real ambivalence about Ike's violence being such a central part of her story. Um, And she spoke to me about how moving it was for years and years and years to get letters from women um, talking about their own experiences and how she opened up a conversation like about that before anybody else was talking about that. Um, Mm. But she also, you know, she had difficulty... Um, revisiting the abuse over and over again. You know, she never saw what's love got to do with it. She said, I don't need to see Ike hit me again.
2: That's a movie based um, on her life that came in 1992, I believe. Yeah.
4: Yes. Yeah. And um, she said, you know, I when I spoke with her, she was 79 years old, and she said that she still had nightmares about him.
2: Mm. It's, it's sort of a, an ability to put some distance, but that doesn't mean that you've completely forgotten that chapter of your life. Garvia, there's a famous quote from an interview that Tina did. I want to read it to you. And the quote is, people think my life has been tough, but I think it has been a wonderful journey. The older you get, the more you realize it's not what happens, but how you deal with it. Uh, Yesterday, Garvia, you wrote that Tina Turner embodied female resilience before it was a thing. Why was she such an inspiration for you in that way, do you think?
0: You know, there uh... She was doing it before there was the shirts trumpeting black girl magic. Mm.
1: Uh, she
0: was just embodying that. And the story of her resilience, you know, the fact that, that in the, the terms intimate partner violence, the terms domestic ab- abuse were not even in our lexicon when she came out into the world and said, this is my truth, but I'm leaving that to the back of my mythology and creating something new. And it really, for, for me, and I think for many women like myself and just people in general, this is a story, the ultimate story of triumph over tragedy, you know? Hmm. And so that resilience to me was has always been an inspiration, not just the fact that she was 40 when she, you know, exploded out of a cannon and into our, our homes and lives. Yeah. It was that she did it on the back of, This really difficult situation that she found herself in and Mm. found herself out of. And then she did not let that thing define her. Like she did not put that, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, she didn't put lights around that every time she went out onto that stage. She put lights around herself like Mm -hmm. this is me right now a whole new chapter that's all about me and my name is writ large Mm -hmm. not me and ike or me and my abuse or me and my abuser, or me and my terrible upbringing Mm -hmm. with parents that abandoned me none of that it Mm -hmm. was just like this is me see me as i am right now and i am powerful right so that is what's inspiring to me
2: Nothing like that voice from her 1984, massive comeback album, Private Dancer, Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? Hey, I'm journalist, Sam Sanders. I'm poet, Saeed Jones. And I'm producer, Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a
1: podcast called Vibe Check.
2: On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real life issues like grief, to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches
5: the surface. Yes, indeed, and it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, come to life, follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.
2: My name is Alamine Abdul Mahmoud, and you're listening to Commotion. Today on the podcast, we are revisiting our favorite tributes to some of the great artists that we lost in 2023. Tina Turner was 83, right? When we lose an artist we've had with us for a long time, we can take some small comfort in the knowledge that they lived this long, fruitful life. That grief, though, can hit a lot harder and be more difficult to process when an artist leaves us far too soon. The news of Sinead O'Connor's death on July 26 at just 56 years old hit a lot of people really hard, especially women who came of age in the late 80s and the early 90s, who kind of saw Sinead as a model for how to live and persevere without compromise. My pal Emil was filling in for me, and she spoke to three members of Generation Sinead, music journalists Nico Stratus and Maura Johnston, and Irish-Canadian author Anna Canis-Cofield, who spoke about what Sinead meant to Irish women in particular.
3: Well, it's really important to understand the context of Ireland at that time. First of all, we grew up with Sinead. Like, I'm very close in age to Sinead. And yesterday, you know, a friend of mine said, I adored her all my life. So she was so critical to us because... First of all, music was a male domain, largely. She Mm -hmm. was like one of the first women. And the other thing that I think was really important about Sinead was the way in which her physicality, when she took to the stage, um, she was in her body. She's very muscular. Her voice was very muscular. She demanded like public reckoning on very difficult and violent truths. And in a way, like we didn't have that kind of space in Ireland in the 80s and the 90s. You know, so she gave us enormous courage. I mean, I'm a novelist. There's no way I could have written, um, especially my second book, Martin John, without the influence of Sinead O'Connor. No question. You know, she comes out of a time where if you spoke up about things, nobody would have believed you. I mean, Mm -hmm. this was an oppressive, very patriarchal culture that was living under the, the, basically the iron fist of the church. And, you know, the female body was enemy number one or two, you know. Probably one. So that context is very important.
0: Yeah, there there are so many great quotes I've seen just in reading pieces about what she had to say about Ireland in that time and what it felt like to live under that that heavy sort of cloud. So Nico, in 1990, she goes from this exciting young alt rock singer, and boom, she's a bona fide pop star with nothing compares to you. And that shaved head, that teardrop just falling so gently and gracefully, that close-up, it was just something that once you saw it, you could not forget it. Why was that combination, that voice, that song, that magic that occurred with that video, why was it so
1: powerful? Because we hadn't really seen anything like it. Sinead O'Connor was really one of a kind in so many different ways. And you know, like for me, you know, like I'm of an age, I'm I'm in my early 40s and and you know, like when I was sort of starting to engage with music, you know, this is what I'm like, I'm quite young, I'm a child. And it's so striking to see this like beautiful woman with the shaved head who doesn't look like you know so much of what we're sold as pop music at the time. She doesn't fit that bill. And then you hear that voice, this voice that, you know, like you said, it cuts through the fog. It's tender and it's soft, but it's capable of so much power and might. And it's always holding itself back. And it's there's all these things happening at one time. And it just It envelops you in this way that just not a lot of other stuff did. It reminds me a lot of the way that I heard when I first heard Fast Car. You Mm -hmm. know, when you get this feeling of like, this is going to change my life forever. You know, there's not a lot of, there's stuff I love that I know will never change my life. But nothing compares to you the first time you hear that. It's like, oh, this is going to haunt me. Like that image of Sinead O'Connor, I can like, if you just say her name, it comes to my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And I think it's because it was so... It just stood in such stark contrast to everything else that we were seeing at the time. And it was this thing where she was like, this is who I am. And it was very honest and very earnest and it was never put on. It was never, she was never doing it to further her career or to, to look like anybody else. She was very staunchly trying to be herself.
0: I think you can also say, you can also point out how sonically striking nothing compares to you was, mm-hmm. especially in the context of the time. And I think this is true about fast car as well. It's very, you know, Pop music in the late 80s, early 90s was very full of stuff because everyone was like, we have all these synthesizers and studio tricks and we have to put them on every song, you know, and it was the age of big guitar solos. And this song, the pyrotechnics came obviously from Sinead's voice, but both of those songs, Fast Car and Nothing Compares to You, were also these just spaces where you could really focus on what this singer was communicating. And I think that that's a very powerful thing to communicate it's so, you know and, and it can really reach a lot of people in a very special way out of in a very quick fashion
1: I can see-
2: Even just the tiniest little snippet of that song and Sinead's voice can give you chills. That is from 1990, Sinead O'Connor, with her version of Nothing Compares to You. Listen, before we go, we need to pay our respects to one more legend that we lost this year. A Canadian icon. Robbie Robertson died on August 9th. He was 80 years old. And I think the simplest way to put it is Robbie was music royalty. Robbie was founding member of the Hawks, which turned into the band. The band came along and fused rock and roll and country and folk and gospel music and it made them one of the most influential bands of the late 60s and early 70s. Later in his life, Robbie had his own successful solo career. He became a soundtrack composer. He did the soundtrack to Killers of the Flower Moon, the latest uh, Martin Scorsese movie. He just became an all-around music industry mogul. He was this whole time always a proud ambassador for the Mohawk and Cayuga people. Robbie grew up in Toronto, but he spent a lot of time with his mother's family at the Six Nations of the Grand River just outside Hamilton. And he's credited that experience with sparking his interest in making music and writing songs. So right now, you're going to hear Robbie talk about that time in his life. And then you're going to hear from Tom Wilson again. He grew up in Hamilton and shared Robbie's Mohawk roots. And then you also hear from another Hamiltonian, Daniel Lanois, who went on to produce Robbie's self-titled solo album in 1987.
4: Every time Ooh. we went back, everybody in the family, it seemed to me, played an instrument. Everybody played an instrument or sang or danced. Because there wasn't like a lot of entertainment coming through town back then. We had to provide our own entertainment. And so that's what made me say, I want to be in this club. I want to play music too. And then the other side of it was the storytellers, that when the elders would speak, it just gave me chills. I thought, I want to be able to tell stories like that. Tom,
2: when you hear that, you know, how do you think about that showing up in his storytelling? How do you think that showed up in his
4: music? Well, uh, well, the same way that I uh, try to do my own work uh, through my through my book writing and my own song writing. This is like... Uh, the seed uh, as i said the kitchen table is our classroom for a lot of us and that's one thing that robbie robertson probably dan and i all share is that uh, family around the table or even strangers or neighbors around the table playing music i mean you got to remember that one of the birthplaces of what we call americana music sits down on the mystic highway highway mm-hmm. six south that runs from hamilton to lake erie you know it cuts through the six nations tobacco fields through migrant workers from the Caribbean as well as local talent plugging into country music you know what I mean like there's mm-hmm. this mixture and that's around where Robbie Robertson spent his summers uh, the bloodland of his mother this is an, an important place and uh, the six nations in that kitchen table that Robbie Robertson grew up around was important the same as it was for me in Hamilton with my uh, uncle Jim Bove from Ganawaga.
2: Daniel, would you take us into the studio when you were producing with him onto the stage? What was he like? What was it like to be around him as he worked?
4: Oh, he was full of uh, life and imagination, as Tom pointed out, know, a great storyteller. So we, most of the uh, the work we did did together was in a small studio that Robbie has at The Village or it had, and uh, just the two of us talking about what could be, and... Uh, I said, what was it like when you were a kid, Robbie? He said, well, I want to go down south and uh, meet Sonny Boy Williamson and, and some of the other blues people down there. Hmm. And uh, I said, well, what was it like when you got down there? He says, well, there was it was always something rumbling some, uh, down the crazy river. So that's <laughs> what he uh, just started telling stories about the river. <laughs> I said, well, there's a song in there somewhere, Robbie.
2: And and what a song, what a song it is that you made. Tom, same question for you. You only performed with him one time, but as a musician, why would you say he was such a singular talent?
4: Uh, well, he had the ability, uh, he, he's proving actually to me more so today that he, he bridged generations. I mean, uh, uh, parents, children both share a love for him. I can tell you that inside my family. Uh, my daughter, my daughter loved the band so much that she told me, "Dad, if I would have been 17 in 1969, I would have run away with the Hawks." <laughs> 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 you know, um, uh, there's that. My grandchildren also uh, have the same. Had the same uh, natural love for for what the band did for how they created music is is something that is something that we have to go on appreciating because it was so from the earth uh, built from the earth up, you know. (laughs)
2: Up on Cripple Creek by the band that is going to take us out today, as we look back on some of the musical legends that we lost in 2023. And that is it for the podcast today. Remember, you can listen to Commotion anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Elamine Abdul Mahmoud. I'll see you tomorrow.